Today, we are in our summer series on Summer with the Sage. A sage is a person, a wisest of the wise men. Oh, they, have, they were often described in the Bible, a sage would be the same word for scientist or architect or somebody that was very, very smart or wise. And we're looking at King Solomon, the wisest man who's ever walked the earth, and trying to study and figure out what is wisdom this Sunday, how do we, this, this summer, how do we get it, how do we become more wise, how do we get the good life that Solomon had. And so today, we're going to be delving into that a little bit deeper. Last week, we defined and we talked about how to get wisdom. What is wisdom and how do we get it? We talked all Sunday last week about that. But the thing that I did not tell you is that there is something else besides knowledge and understanding. There's something beneath the wisdom that Psalm has. There's something that goes through the whole book of Proverbs that just strings it all together. There's this thing that if you don't have this, then you will not be wise even if you're pursuing wisdom. One of the great literary devices in just writing stories or books or making a movie is just crafting a story around a theme. I've shared this before. I will share it again. I will share it tomorrow that I love Star Wars. Amen? And maybe like you, if I say, do you like Star Wars or what comes to your mind, you might say, yeah, I like Star Wars because I like aliens and I like, uh, you know, lightsabers and I like space battles or whatever. Or you might say Star Wars because I don't like science fiction and there's other churches for you. There's, this may not be the church. You can go down the road. God bless you. But George Lucas did not set out to create an epic space saga. He set out to create and craft and write a story that talked about a family and that family's dynamics. And one of the reasons that the first six episodes are so much better than everything else that's come out is because they follow this story. <laughs> I like that we're getting amens when we're talking about Star Wars and church. This is the best day ever. <laughs> I just started thinking of, I, I, I did, went down a little rabbit hole and just thinking, what was the crowd in 1980 when Empire Strikes Back, when, and, and spoiler alert, Darth Vader is Luke's father. If you haven't seen it, you're too late. You had 30 years, 40 years. What was the crowd's reaction to that? And it was just really cool to see how invested people were in this room. There were gasps and applause and just, is that true? And disbelief and it was all because they were so wrapped up, not in the space saga, which was really cool, or lightsabers or whatever. It's because they were invested in the theme of this family story being told. And that theme was woven throughout every movie of you see this dynamic coming in and coming out. Is Anakin going to become bad? Is Luke going to follow his footsteps? Will you see this? And so very similar to that, Proverbs has this theme that's woven in through the whole book. And King Solomon's life has this theme that as we look more, we're going to bounce back to his life in a couple weeks here. As we look at King Solomon's life, there was more to him than just being wise or being wealthy or having a really good life. There's something underneath all of that that we have to get to understand the theme of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, Solomon lists all the reasons that he wrote Proverbs. The purpose of Proverbs was to teach people wisdom and discipline. It was to help them understand, to learn how to live successful lives, to know what was right and what was wrong. If you take that word knowledge in the Hebrew, it's the same word that they would use to describe a skilled hunter or a sailing or playing a musical instrument. Proverbs was written in order for Solomon's people to find the good life, to become skillful at life. 
I don't know if you've ever thought of somebody and just thought, man, they have it together. Like they understand business, they understand how to play the guitar, they understand how to fix cars, they understand whatever your thing is, but like, man, they are good at that, and I want to become good at that like they are. I remember sitting down with John Meyer growing up, who taught me how to read a tab sheet, and I thought, John is such a good guitar player, I want to learn how to play, and I would put myself in positions where John Meyer could teach me how do I play this guitar, Solomon, the wisest man to ever walk the earth, filthy rich, so rich that silver is considered dust and worthless in his time. That's how prevalent gold was. It wrote the Proverbs to help people become skillful at finding the good life. But if you pursue all of that and don't have this theme that runs through the whole book of Proverbs, all of that is worthless. I love in uh, 1 Corinthians where Paul is, writes this powerhouse chapter, short but so good, probably one of the most well-known chapters in the whole Bible, read it probably almost every wedding in the world, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he talks about this of love. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and angels but didn't love others, I would be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans, possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but I didn't love others, I would have nothing. And that idea that if you could have all of these things but you don't have this, you're missing the whole point of having all these things. So if you could be business wise and just have a very entrepreneurial spirit and your business is successful but you miss this one thing, you've missed it all. If you're the friend that everybody comes to, or the aunt or the uncle that everybody comes to when life's a mess and they just want your advice because you are very wise and you have good counsel, but you miss this thing, you've missed it all. If you have a long, good, healthy life and your body is fit because you are so aware of what you put into it and how to exercise and you, you do all those things, but you miss this one thing, you've missed the whole thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Nope. Okay, maybe you're just sleeping. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do I need to go back to Star Wars? No, we're going to keep going. I don't care. Okay, I'm going to give it to you. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Solomon does not hide this thing from us. He says this, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Mean this, we're in a pursuit of figuring out wisdom this summer and trying to apply it and bring it into our lives, that we would be wiser, that we would be skillful at life, that we would find that good life that Proverbs talks about, that Solomon had. But if you do not have the fear of the Lord, you are pursuing the wrong thing. And if you get, pursue all these other things and get those things without the fear of the Lord, you have nothing. I could be wise, but I'm wise in my own eyes. I'm rich, but I'm, that becomes idolatry to me. I, I, I have health, and it becomes my security. And as soon as that goes, my whole life. If you pursue the wrong thing and get an okay thing, it's very similar to getting that nectarine. That thing is just a dud. I worked so hard. I got to this point. I did all the things, and I tried to get the right thing. But when you take a bite, you realize it's just tasteless and lacking and not fulfilling. There is a way of life that is best of all. And it begins, with, begins and is sustained by this thread of the fear of the Lord. Amen? 
So fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, or you could say it, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. So what Solomon is saying here is that fear of the Lord is the thing that we pursue, and the opposite of that, the person that pursues anything else other than trying to apply that into their life is the fool. And you'll see this theme, you'll see this thing work itself out in Proverbs of the wise person and the fool. And the Proverbs continually tries to push you into the path of wisdom. This woman that calls out on the street saying, come and follow me. Come and hear my ways. Come under my tutelage. Help me to teach you. And you see Lady Wisdom in opposition to Lady Folly. And this whole book is about becoming and following the path of wisdom and staying away from the way of But today we're going to focus on what is the fear of God? What does it mean to fear the Lord? This is a super common uh, phrase in the church, and it's even a little How many people have ever messed up really big time and your parents put the fear of the Lord in you? Some of you aren't raising your hand, and I know who you are. I know that that was your childhood. Yeah. How many of you have ever used that phrase on your kids? Boy, you're going to get the fear. I'm going to give you something, okay? And so we know this phrase and we hear it, but I, I don't think we probably have a very accurate understanding of what it is. Or maybe we do, but could you go and explain that to your third grader or explain that to your neighbor? And so that's what we want to do today is understand what is the fear of the Lord, this thing that guides and holds everything else up, and how do we live that practically out in our lives? And so I'd like to just pause and do something we don't normally do here, and I'm going to read you just a whole string of verses. And so I'd encourage you, if you want to pull your phone out, you can take these down. I'm just going to read them one after another. If you just want to sit and just listen, that's fine too. But what I want you to do is to really zone in and listen to these verses. So what I did is I looked up every reference to fear of the Lord, fear of God, and Proverbs, and you get about 19 verses. And if you read all of those back to back to back, you begin to get this sense or understanding of what this term is, fear of the Lord. And so I've just taken about nine or ten, and I just want to read them all to you just right in a row. And so feel free to write the verses down as I go or just to listen. But we'll start with Proverbs 5. He says, my child, listen to what I say and treasure my commands. Then you'll understand what it means to fear the Lord, and you will gain knowledge of God. Proverbs 3, 7, don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord, turn away from evil. 8, 13, all who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption and perverse speech. 9, 10, fear, the Lord, fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. 14.2, those who follow the right path fear the Lord. Those who take the wrong path despise him. 14.27, fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. It offers escape from the snares of death. 15.6, better to have a little with the fear of the Lord than to have a great treasure and inner turmoil. 16.6, failing love and faithfulness make atonement for sin by fearing the Lord. By fearing the Lord, people avoid evil. And 23.17, don't envy sinners. Always continue to fear the Lord. 24.21, my child, fear the Lord and the king. Don't associate with rebels. And lastly, 29.25, fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. 
So after I just read all those things to you, what picture, what lessons, what sense, Roma, what are you beginning to understand that the fear of the Lord is? When I read all of those and the other ones that are not, that I didn't read, I get this sense of that when we fear God, we naturally begin to hate evil. When we fear God, we naturally begin to desire the things that God desires, and that naturally pivots us away from the things that God does not desire. We naturally begin to want the things that God wants for us, and we naturally begin to not want the things that, everybody, that the world wants for us. When I read all of those verses together, I realize that the fear of God is often opposed to greed. The, the desire for more, the desire or security of wealth often inhibits my desire to follow God. Wealth's not bad, being rich is not bad, being financially secure is not bad, but when we take that and put it in place over God, it's not good. When we say, I'd rather be rich, I'd rather be financially secure than have the fear of God in me, than desire what he desires, you're off in the wrong spot. When I read all these verses, I feel that God, and fear of God naturally guides us towards others. The fear of God desire, that steers us away from rebellious or evil people or people that are living a life that will draw you in. There's verses in Proverbs where it talks about this, that evil does not just do its own thing. Evil or th something that's far away from God, it's always looking to draw other people in. To make you, if you, it's kind of like this. If you, um, yesterday we put a flag out for the Pingree Grove Parade. We put a, stuck it in the ground, and as we're pushing, we pushed really hard trying to get into the ground and just ripped. Just put a little hole into it. And as the day's going on, that rip's growing, growing, and as we're securing the flag and trying to pull it out, that little rip that was just a couple inches big grew and grew and grew until it was about a foot, foot and a half big. And that's the idea of the sin is that it doesn't just want its own thing. It wants to grow. It wants to suck more people in. It wants to look out and say, if I'm not just going to do this, I want you to do this too. If you've ever gotten in trouble before because not, it wasn't even your idea, but your friend who said, hey, let's go do this, you're like, I don't really want to do that. My parents say, I shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't do that. But he's like, come on, it's not going to be that bad. That's the idea of bad influence bringing you in and pulling you farther from the life that God wants you to. God, it leads to this fulfillment, this whole life, a satisfied life, the good life. And so maybe you're beginning to get a picture of what this means, but can we describe it yet? Amy and I took a trip to the West Coast uh, last year. And so when we were telling people we were going there, a bunch of different people who had been to this place said, you have to go to the beach and check out this specific beach. So the one free morning that Amy and I had, we went out to Canyon Beach. It was about an hour and a half drive. It was through all these beautiful forests and stuff. And it was just a great drive. We were just enjoying talking and stuff. But we decided to take, you know, three-hour round trip and just go and check it out. And so we got there, and we immediately understood why people kept telling us to go there. Because right offshore is this rock. It's called Haystack Rock. This rock is not just any rock, though. It's 235 feet tall. To give you an idea of what that means, the average house, two-story house, is 20 feet tall. And so take 11 two-story houses and stack them up on top of each other. The top of this ceiling is about 45 feet tall. Take this church and stack five of them up on top of each other, and you begin to see the, about the scope of Haystack Rock. It's just this huge, monolithic-style kind of rock, and it's just amazing. 
And so you get there to the beach, and you see it way off, and you begin walking, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And as you get closer to it, you realize it's not just a rock sitting off in the water, but it's actually, as you get there closer, you see these tidal pools that come in and go out. You see all these crabs and all these other things that live there. And then as you look up, you see these puffins, which are hard to see and diminishing in the world right now. And there's about 100 puffins that call their home Haystack Rack. It's one of the only places in the U.S. that you can see a puffin from the seashore. And so you see these hundreds of birds flying around. And you see all of these animals living inside here. And you see the size of the rock. And there's something that it does in us as we stood there and we observed it. The sun's just starting to come up over the horizon. And the waves are coming in and it's out. And you can almost taste the brine of the sea in the air. And you just stand there and you just look up and up and you just can't really get your head around how big this stupid rock is. And you see the birds coming in and out. And you look down this way and you look down this way and you, it's as far as you can see the beach stretches. And then you look out, and as far as you can see, the ocean goes. And something begins to stir up inside of you. You begin to realize how small you actually are. You begin to realize how beautiful nature is. And a peace starts to enter you. And maybe you've had this experience. I've had friends that went and visited Iceland, and they visited, and they said, you just, it's like an alien came and just built these ice chunks out of nowhere. I've talked to people who have gone to see the Grand Canyon, and so say, you just stand there and amaze it, and your brain cannot comprehend what's happening. Or maybe it's just as simple as going outside at night and looking up at the stars and sitting on a park bench and just looking up and realizing how beautiful and how vast the heavens are. We're living in a, continually, a world that's continually more and more distracted for our attention. But if you take a moment to get outside and to just go and look at these beautiful things and the vastness of all of this that God has created, you realize something. You begin, something is stirred up inside of you. This feeling is the fear of the Lord. Warren Wearsby, he says, we acknowledged from our hearts that he's the creator and we're the creatures. He's the father and we're his children. He's the master and we're the servants. And so there's this sense of what is the fear of the Lord? It's a sense of awe and respect. Much of my life and much of the times I get frustrated with my life is trying to control my life. Things are just going crazy at work. Things are going crazy in my family. And so I lean towards things that will bring control back into my anger or something else. I bring some sense of control into my life. And there's these been moments in my life where I get outside and I realize that how silly that is. How as much as I'm trying to scrabble to hold all the pieces together, I'm not strong enough or big enough or capable enough. And there's something outside of myself that is be way, way bigger than me. And when I get into that moment and I look at the stars, look at the sea, look at Haystack Rock, I realize that there is a creator and I am just a, a thing that has been created. The natural response into me is to give thanks. The natural response that comes out of me is to say, God, you are so cool. 
And that's such an inadequate response to what's happening to me, but that's the best way I can phrase this. God, you are so cool. If you've ever sat on your porch and just saw a particularly amazing sunset, and you try to take a picture with your phone, and the phone just, just does not do justice to it, you understand what I'm saying, is that you had to be there to experience it. There's something about creation that shows you that there is a creator. So when we talk about fear of the Lord, is this reverent respect of God. Sometimes it's easy to get this picture in our mind that fear of the Lord means that we should be scared because of all the bad things that we've done. All the bad things, the things that separate us from us. And that's not what we think it means it's the slave that has a harsh master and they're scared. It's the obedience of a victim to their abuser. It's the child that pretends to be sick and stay at home because they don't want to go to school and be bullied. That's the unhealthy, worldly fear that sometimes creeps into our mind. But to me, the fear of the Lord is the devotion and the love that my dog treats me with. It doesn't matter where I'm going. As soon as I get up in the house, there she is. I'm like, go away. As soon as I lay down, she comes up and says, oh, we're laying down? Okay, let's do it. No. I could be having the worst mood of my life, and she's like, are you okay? What are we mad about? She has no idea, no sense of the bad things, the worst things. She just thinks I'm the best thing in the world. She just wants to be with me wherever I'm at. And the thing about her is that she's a breed that is born with this desire to uh, please the master. So her whole life is devoted to me. And I'm really sorry for her because I'm not a good dog owner. I, I mean, you've heard me talk about my dog. I don't have a lot of love for my dog. But if we can just begin treating God with this sense of <laughs> puppy love in ourselves, God, I just want to be with you. I just want to go where you're going. I just want to, when you get up, I want to get up. When you move, I want to go where you go. When you say rest, I just want to sit down. I want to do the things that make you say, good boy, good girl. You say, that a boy, that a way. I want to do the things that please you. My dog very quickly learned that when you pie train, we don't eat off the table. We don't roughhouse with the kids because they learn that those things displease us. And she just wants to make us happy. So there's a way to do life, where it's good and where it's bad. And when you begin to pursue this way of life that pleases God, it's that heart of what's the fear of the Lord. There was one writer that said it's, it's loving reverence of God. And I think that is the best definition I've found of what fear of the Lord is. It's reverence and it's awe, but it's all coming out of a sense of love and desire to just be with God. But I do want to just give this kind of a little bit of warning here. Sometimes in our culture, we've taken this too far. Sometimes we think, well, that means that if I just love God, he's going to love me. And fear of the Lord just means that I just awe and respect him and I just give him some of my time or whatever. And so I can just do what I want. I can, we don't verbalize that, but we do that. We're in a moment. We decide I shouldn't do this or I should do this. And I decide to do the thing I don't want to do, but I feel bad about it. But I come back to church. I know God's going to be okay with this. But we just know that we're going to go back to it again and again. And so there is this, this thing of where fear of the Lord is this reverent awe and respect, but don't forget that God is God. 
Don't forget that he is the one in control. Don't forget that we are the creature and he's the creator, that we are the thing living to please the master. There's this thing with my kids, and maybe you've used this line. I like to explain things to them. I like to say, no, we're not going to eat a third bowl of ice cream. No, we're not going to stay up till 11 o'clock. No, we're not going to eat gum before this. No, we're not going to invite those people over. I like to explain those things. No, we're not going to watch a fifth hour of TV today, whatever that is. But have you ever used this line, because I said so? And there's some moments that my kids, I get to the point of, no, you're not going to get a reason. You're not going to get an understanding. It's just because I'm the one that's in charge today, and it's because I said so. And sometimes we like to come to God and say, God, I want this. I want this. I want this. Or I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And we forget that God is God. Um, Catherine, just a little bit ago, referenced Job, chapter 38. In those chapters, Job has a terrible life. I mean, he just got thrown into the worst possible scenario. And through it all, Job's doing a pretty good job, but he comes to God and he gives all of these reasons of why he's feeling so off or feeling like he's having a hard time with it. And God says, brace yourself. Be a man, because I'm about to ask you to answer them. And sometimes it's easy to forget that we are speaking to the creator of the universe, that God's position, he is God. And our job is to say yes when he asks us to do something. Go where he says and live a life that is pleasing to him. We cannot forget his position and not forget who he is. Anybody grew up with Chronicles of Narnia? I'm just realizing right now that this is a very science fiction themed sermon today. And I forgive me, but that's just how it went. As a child, my parents, my mother, would read us these books, and there's been this one line that stuck with me ever since I was a child. And the line, the witch in the wardrobe, is this grand metaphor for C.S. Lewis wrote this, and it's all about God's coming and uh, the fight versus good versus evil. And in this story, there's this lion called Aslan, and this is God in the story. And Susan, this girl that's coming from our world to Narnia, she's talking to this speaking beaver. This is a great... If you've never seen it, it's so good. He's talking animals, it's awesome. And so he's there and he's talking, he's trying to teach them about Aslan, teach them the ways of Narnia, and she says this. The beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan says, oh, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Safe. But he's good. He's the king. Friends, the fear of God is this devotion to God. It's a respect and a reverence to understand that he's God. He's the lion. He, he, every breath that we take, everything we do is this grace and at his whim. God's not safe. <laughs> he's God. He can do whatever he wants. But he's so good. In the garden, you have this time and time again where Adam and Eve come and they say, don't eat this tree or you will die. The snake comes and he begins to speak to Eve and he says, will you really die if you eat that? And he said, God said, if we eat from this tree, we will die. A little while later, what do they do? They eat from the tree. And God promised that if you eat from this tree, you're going to die. And so what does God do? He comes in the middle of the night. He comes in the evening and he begins to walk in and says, where are you? And Adam and Eve, filled with shame, filled with fear, they hide from God. And they said, we were scared because we were naked. 
We are scared because we are exposed. We are scared because we are far from the life that you called us to live. But what did God promise them? You will die. You will die. You will die. So God delivers them and hands them over to the full sin. But I want to read you this one verse. Oh, I'm so sorry. Where is it? This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. It says, The Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And he sent them out of the garden. And so this whole time we have this sense of, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. And then we get to God, and God's not as scary as we thought. He's God. He's the king, but he's good. And so what does he actually do? God, in the beginning of the Bible, makes the first sacrifice and he keeps animals, and he makes clothes, and he clothes us, and he comforts us, and he comes around us. And then he, the rest of the Bible is this story about God bringing us back into relationship with him. Why? He's God, but he's good. And it's our position to remember and live a life that's fully devoted to him in respect to his position of authority. Amen? Church, would you just stand with me? We're going to go back into a time of worship here in just a second. I just want to read to you just Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 8. So we just talked about what is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is this reverence that comes out of reverence that comes out of understanding that God is the king. God is the maker. That I want to live a life in his kingdom. I want to live the way that he says I should. I want to live the life that he says is best. Now how do I do that? Proverbs 3, 5, and 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I believe that Proverbs 3, 5, and 8 is the way that we live this fear of the Lord out in our lives every week every day. It means that I acknowledge him. I give him first dibs on my life. He says, I want your finances like this, so I live my finances in according to that. Here's the relationships that I want you to have. Okay, Lord, I'll pattern those. Here's the things that I want you to spend your, when you find ways to entertain yourself or your desires, I want you to live them in this way. And I say, Lord, okay. I trust the Lord by giving, acknowledging him in every single aspect of my life. And I don't hold any of it back from him. Fear of the Lord is following a benevolent king's design for human happiness. I believe that God knows the best and most satisfying life I can live. I choose to pursue a life that reflects that. So I tithe. I'm faithful to my wife. I love my kids. I try to live simply and generously. I don't get drunk or high. I don't watch television that's profane or sexually promiscuous. Why? because I don't like having fun, because I don't like to do what everybody else on my Instagram feed does? No. Because I believe that God has a life that's best for me. Because I chose to devote my life to the King, because he's good. I believe that he cares about me. I believe there's a way of life that's best of all, and I wanna pursue it and follow it. And so I trust God. 
and I align my life to fit and to follow the way that God's calling me to go. And when you begin to do that, when you begin to fear the Lord, reverently respect him out of love, you naturally will position and turn away from the things that will call you away from that. Amen? C.S. Lewis says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I follow God because it's not just a thing to do on Sunday mornings. It's the thing that defines everything else in my life. Everything in my life, from my relationships to my job to how I handle my finances and uh, raise my children, all comes through this lens of fear of the Lord and devotion to him.